Radio Mano Papachango. Sunday to you, if you're listening to this the same day I'm recording it or a week later. I'm recording this Sunday, March 20th, and I will throw it up on the internet forthwith. This is a special episode I recorded just a couple hours ago with Miss Anya Katz. She asked me to be on her podcast uh, to talk a bit about psychedelics and some of my experiences with psychedelics and uh, the search for meaning, I guess, would be a way to summarize what she wanted to talk about. And then I wanted to talk to her about astrology and the search for meaning. And so we decided to combine the podcasts and co-release them. Um, so that's what's happening. So if you listen to her podcast, you may have already heard this. Uh, if you'd rather listen to her intro and outro, you can jump over to a millennial's guide to saving the world where the same conversation will be released at any moment. So that's what's happening there. This episode is brought to you by OMG. Yes. Yes, it is. OMG. Yes. Is the home of reliable scientifically derived information about female pleasure. I'm sorry if that sounds creepy coming from me, coming through my voice, but that's the only voice I've got. OMGES.com forward slash Chris Ryan. You'll get 10% off your entire lifelong membership in the website. It's like a library membership. Imagine, think of it as like a library of sexual knowledge about pleasure and about women's bodies and women's minds because bodies and minds, as we know, cannot be separated, should never be thought of as separate, especially when it comes to women. I mean, men, I think it's a little more uh, compartmentalized, perhaps the physical and the mental and the emotional and the psychological with women. It's all mixed together. So if you want to understand that package better, whether you're a woman, a man, whatever you are, whatever kind of creature you consider yourself to be, the pleasure of women is, of course, important to you. So check out omgs.com forward slash Chris Ryan for 10% off. All right. So this conversation with Anya, as I said, just happened a couple hours ago, sitting here in Kash, Turkey. You can hear the call to prayer at one point, uh, which we hear every day from our room overlooking the town here. It's a beautiful little town. It's a strange time to be here. In some ways, we're very lucky to be here now um, in very sort of pedestrian terms. It's before the season starts, so we... We're here without a lot of tourists, but you can tell, man, midsummer, this place must be rocking because it's all built to be outside. The water is so beautiful, crystal clear. 
makes you want to jump into it, but the air is still quite cold. So we haven't gone in the water. Um, and it's almost like the town is just starting to wake up. You can see every day more shops are open, more restaurants are open. And it's not just from the winter. I'm sure it's from COVID as well. It's a very popular place for Russians and Ukrainians. So that's kind of strange to be sitting in a cafe and there are people at the next table all speaking Russian and you wonder what's going on in their lives. Are they fleeing? Are they all Russians? Are some of them Ukrainians? Are they all Ukrainians? What are they going through? Have they lost their savings? Are they stranded here? They can't get back into their country? I don't know. I don't want to ask. It seems rude. But um, it is strange to be in the, the presence of so many people who are Definitely going through some heavy shit, no matter which side of it they're on. Um, there are no winners in a situation like that. So that's bizarre. Anyway, this conversation is interesting. I, I as I say to Anya, am, you know, come at astrology from a sort of scientific uh, perspective. And so I've been very kind of harshly skeptical and critical of it because I really hate when something pretends to be a science and it isn't. Um, but the way she comes at it is to acknowledge right up front that nobody's talking about science here. This is about something more like reading a novel or writing a novel where the meaning exists apart from any question of veracity. You know, did this really happen? Doesn't matter. It's not about whether it really happened. It's about the meaning to be found in the archetypes and the, the mythologies that are associated with those archetypes. And that's a totally different way of looking at things, which obviously I have no problem with and, and find very fruitful in my own ways of thinking about life and dreams and literature and music and all these other things. So I won't, uh, I won't belabor the point. I'll just get right into it. Thank you for listening to this. As I sort of tease at one point at the end of the conversation, I may have some interesting news to relay to you soon. I'm uh, in the midst of talking to some folks about making some major changes to the podcast and the way the podcast is distributed. I'll let you know as soon as I have some solid word on that. But in any case, I think if the change happens, it'll be for the better in, in every possible way. So I'm excited about that possibility. I hope things are going great for you out there in the world, wherever you are, whatever weird thing you're doing. And uh, I will be back with you very shortly. I'm going to play you out with a song called Blue Sky. It's by someone named Dwayne Hoover. And I believe that Dwayne listens to the podcast or did years ago and sent me his music. Um, it's on Bandcamp. And so if you want to download the album, it's called Ham. And you can find it on Dwayne Hoover dot 
bandcamp.com and you'll see Ham by Dwayne Hoover. This song is called Blue Sky and uh, it's got a simplicity and a purity and a sort of crystalline sadness that I think um, captures a lot of how many of us are feeling at this moment including probably the Russians at the next table in the cafe. Blue Sky by Dwayne Hoover. Thank you for your attention. Flew across the blue sky there, payloads locked and ready. Pushed from someone's finger, let it rain down quick and steady. Fire's on the ground, but the smoke snakes way up high. People left there standing, they hang their heads and cry. Smoke chokes sunlight, it's madness on the street. Now no birds are singing, flowers don't smell sweet. Clouds of snow and ash on a warm day in July People left there standing, they hang their heads and cry When will they learn? We've been through this before I was a soldier once I killed From a dream one day The rain falling down Washed the sickness to the sea That blanketed the ground Dark days have passed them by Clouds open wide Sun returns to warm the day Mirrors reflect the sky We've come to when we cannot even speak Our tongues are tied in ribbons Fear house through the trees And all the tired lives Affected by the war Dig a hole and throw it down Remember it no more When will I learn I've been through this before
All right, here we are in Kosh, Turkey. I feel like this is the first in-person podcast you've done in a while. Yeah. I guess me too, honestly. COVID and traveling and... um, Yeah, uh, I'm here with Chris. Chris Ryan. and Also uh, known as Dr. Fur. (laughs) Yeah, I I once went to say Dr. Chris Ryan and spoke too quickly. Dr. Christopher. Christopher Ryan, right. And spoke too quickly and it just came out as Dr. Fur. I was like, that's actually great. It's a very happy accident. Um, so I wanted to have Dr. Fur on the show to talk sort of broadly about meaning and finding truth and spirituality and, uh, maybe more specifically about his experience with and journey within the realm of psychedelics. Um, you gave a talk at Meet Delic. When was that? Last summer? (laughs) No. No? It was like November, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, you gave a talk at Medelic, which was like a psychedelic conference, and I feel like your talk was quite different than a lot of the other people who gave a talk. Because they prepared, you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a psychedelic conference in Las Vegas. So uh, right there, you know there's something fucking weird about it. Yeah. And I never would have agreed to do it, except it was originally scheduled to happen in Los Angeles, like what, two two years years earlier? And when they approached me at that point, I was living near Los Angeles and they offered me some money to come and give a talk and go home. It was like no big deal. I drive downtown, I give a talk, I get back in the car, maybe have some dinner and go home. Um, But then it got canceled because of COVID and then... And they didn't ask for their money back. <laughs> and I was like, all right, what's going to happen? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, and then finally two years later, they're like, okay, we're doing this in Vegas. <clears throat> Plus, we'll give you a little more money and, you know, we'll pay for your room. And it's like, yeah. oh, shit, Vegas, really? Yeah. So that's the second time I have spent any time at all in Vegas. The first time was my first public talk ever about sexuality, right. which was right after I finished my dissertation, far, far before Sex at Dawn even was conceived, much less published. Yeah. So yeah, I've been to Vegas twice, once to talk about sex, once to talk about drugs. I mean, that's pretty cool though. Like instead of going to Vegas to actually gamble or something. Yeah. No, <laughs> like I always say you're going to go to Vegas. You have to pay me to go yeah, to exactly. Vegas. I will not yeah. go to Vegas for free, much less pay my yeah. own money. Fuck and, that. You, and you did definitely prepare because I watched you write the notes for your talk on a paper menu from a seafood restaurant in, in Guatemala. Guatemala. City. Yeah, that was a really <laughs> and good you menu. You brought the menu up on stage with you. Yeah. So so it's your version of preparedness. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So and I I feel like I don't have a lot of experience with psychedelics, basically one real experience and another. I don't really know what to, to call it as far as an experience goes. Um, but I really do appreciate Uh, your perspective about this because you've sort of gone on a journey with it from when you were younger to now. Um, And I think we both sort of see this, you know, 
we see psychedelics or any other tool or practice, spiritually speaking, as, you know, a door into something, but then you have access to the door afterward. Um, So if we want to see the world as like, you know, a beautiful spiritual psychedelic place, do we actually need to use psychedelics every time in order to kind of access that room? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I guess I see psychedelics also, I mean, we're going to mix up metaphors here, but I, I see it as a window in the sense that it, it's like the, the, the psychedelics can open the curtains and you see through the window and you see what's there, but you're still separated from it. You're not in it in a way. Right. Because... Um, it requires the substance to to give you that vision. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the value of it, of, of these experiences, is that you see what's there. You see what's out there. You see, um, you know, what exists outside this consensus reality that you're living in, which in this metaphor is, is like the room you're in, right? right. Um, and if you're raised in a house and you never see outside the windows, you think the whole world is drywall and marble countertops. You know, you don't understand that there's a world of animals and birds and insects and all that stuff happening right outside the window. So you see outside and you see, oh, my God, everything's alive. Everything's interconnected. You, you get these incredible insights into reality, but you still need to get out there. And I think that one of the dangers is that the danger of where we are currently and that I tried to talk about at that conference in Vegas is that we often, especially in America, confuse the vision for the experience, right? It's like we confuse like you've done a bunch of ayahuasca and now you think you're a fucking shaman. Right. But you're not a shaman. You're just somebody who's done a bunch of ayahuasca who has a sense of reality beyond what you used to have. And when you combine that sense with ego and this sort of American tendency to turn everything into a business opportunity. And to overconsume it. Overconsume it, oversell it, yeah. monetize it, yeah. package it, you know, turn everything into some kind of slick, you know, all-inclusive package. I, I don't know if I talked about this in Vegas, but I don't think I did. I hope I didn't. But I was invited to to go to this um, ayahuasca retreat center in Costa Rica years ago. And I went down there and... You know, I think the what they were looking for was for me to lend some legitimacy to it by having some people on my podcast, which I did. Yeah. And and it wasn't there was no strings attached. They didn't tell me that was a condition of me coming, you know, it just sort of happened. Naturally, I wanted to to help them and spread the word and all that. And it, it was a good place. It was called Rhythmia. Yeah. It, it was it was an okay place, but it was it was very much like a golf retreat kind of deal. 
and quite expensive. And so it appeals to people who don't want to be uncomfortable, which right off the bat, that's an interesting contradiction, right? You want to have insights into the nature of reality that could rock your fucking world, but you don't want to be uncomfortable. (laughs) So, mm, all right. But anyway, the, the owner of the place, I think his name was Jerry, uh, had previously made a shit ton of money. Oh, he owned a, a chain of cosmetic surgery clinics, right? So he had made all this money and, you know, basically cutting up people's bodies to change the way they looked rather than, you know, having insight and, you know. Right. Um, and then he... He had a breakdown. I, I can't remember all the details, but he he was kind of an asshole, and he was the kind of guy who always had to have the most expensive watch and the most expensive car, and he had five houses, and his wife hated him, and his kids hated him. Typical success story. And he was, like, considering suicide, and then somebody said to him, you should do ayahuasca before you kill yourself, and he did, and suddenly it was like, oh, my God, it was a miracle, and his whole life changed around, and now he decided he wanted to bring ayahuasca to the masses. The problem is that he brought his cosmetic surgery-owning, shtick-spieling salesman energy to this, and so everyone who went to this place, and I don't know if it's still this way, I God, I hope not, but... Everyone who went to this place, they had to sit there. The first thing was listen to Jerry tell his story. And his story was basically what I just outlined. But then it ended with, you will experience a miracle. Everyone who comes here will experience a miracle. We've studied this. 97.8% of the people who've come to Rhythmia have experienced miracles. We guarantee you will experience a fucking miracle. It's like, dude. Yeah. What is wrong with you? Like, you're missing the whole fucking point here. Right. Which I think, right, speaks more broadly to this idea that psychedelics, and in my opinion, I think any kind of spiritual practice, doesn't necessarily or isn't, doesn't have a guarantee to change the way you approach the world or to change your personality, right? Like, there was all these people saying that Trump should take psychedelics or ayahuasca. Like, no, 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 that would... That would just increase his right. <laughs> narcissi- narcissism and ego because I think you need to kind of have some degree of humility and um, openness and, like you said, a willingness to be uncomfortable in order for these substances, tools, whatever we want to call them, to actually – and it, again, I don't even think it's rework you. I think it's just assist you in whatever journey you're already on. Yeah. One of the things about ayahuasca that's different from other psychedelics I've been told is, I mean, I've done ayahuasca twice, I think, maybe three times. So I'm no expert. But what I've been told is that the substance itself directs your attention toward what you need to deal with, particularly if there's an illness or some sort of physiological mind-body issue. Um, so it might, you know, direct you toward your liver or your heart or your digestive system or whatever. And I often think psychedelics have the capacity to do that in a psychological sense as well, right? The problem is that people can misinterpret that 
focus. Like, you know, if, if what I said in, in Vegas, the whole sort of structure of my talk was that for me, psychedelics are like mentors or a teacher. And so the, the mentor or the teacher could direct your attention toward your ego, hoping that you will transcend your ego or understand how your ego is holding you back or leading you to hurt other people or something like that. But if you don't really know what you're doing, you could interpret that as inflation of the ego. Right. Right. I am God. I've seen through the veil. And I think that's a huge danger for people who come into this with already inflated egos. Right. You know, and so like your teacher could say to you, you know, you're really smart. You're a very intelligent person, hoping that what you're going to take away from that is like, I'm really smart. So I should be more compassionate to people who can't understand me. Right. And I should learn how to adjust my expectations of other people, not in a, not looking down on them, simply saying, I was lucky. I was born with a mental capacity that's unusual and therefore I should, um, you know, take that into consideration when I'm dealing with people. But you might just take that to say, yeah, I'm a fucking genius, man. I'm amazing. Yeah. I'm just so fucking awesome. And <laughs> look at all you idiots who can't understand me, right? Like you can yeah. take that same insight and that same teaching and use it to to become a better person or to become just more of an asshole that you already are. Right. And I would say also another route that you could go is sort of maybe the inverse of that spectrum, which is to develop not genuine humility, but false humility. Because I yeah. think like, this is my issue with the whole Joe Rogan thing. When if, you know, someone says to Joe Rogan, you have all, you know, this huge audience and you're really powerful. And he consistently downplays that and says, no, I'm just a guy. I don't know why anyone's listening to me. And yet, meanwhile, I think, what did you say? Like his audience is well beyond like the the audience of major news networks. Um, so the amount of people that are listening to him and that value his opinion and that actually think he is a legit dude who they want to listen to and who they learn from. Um, I think there's a lot of people too that like I see after they take psychedelics and um, they sort of are posting about it on social media and they have a huge audience and they're not conscious around how much influence they have. It's like, what is that quote from Superman with great power comes great responsibility. Like on the one hand, we don't want to overinflate our egos, but on the other hand, if you are given this gift of intelligence or leadership or the fact that people follow you, you do need to kind of take ownership over that and ensure that you're using that influence for good and responsibly. Yeah, but but it's it's really complicated in the case of, of Joe Rogan, as you mentioned, because, you know, you also said the reason people listen to him is that he's a regular guy. And he comes across as a regular guy. So what happens to that once he starts saying, oh, I need to use my influence for good? Well, first of all, who's he to decide what's good and what isn't good? Yeah. And that's part of his initial appeal that he's just a guy. Right. It's part of what I do on my podcast, too. It's like I'm not trying to come across as like 
an expert on something or I know more than you do. I'm just saying, you know, here are conversations I have with people or here are things that I'm thinking about. Here are books I've read. Here's a poem that I think is cool. Here's some music I really enjoy. Maybe you will, too. If not, that's all right. If, you know, you think I'm full of shit, that's all right. I am full of shit sometimes. Yeah. So it's a problem where, you, you know, like I don't think Joe Rogan's popularity necessarily requires that he start. It's, it's so hard because it goes both ways, right? Like, of course, if millions of people are listening to you, you should be a little careful about what you say, because if 1% of the people misinterpret you, that's a lot of people. If yeah. it's, if your baseline's a million, right? Yeah. Um, but that can be paralyzing too. And then you end up with the same problem, right? The reason people like Rogan are popular is precisely because CNN and MSNBC and all these other outlets are so filtered at, through a bias. They're dishonest about their bias. They're dishonest about, they're not spontaneous. They're not joking. And when you joke and you're spontaneous, then you're in danger of saying the wrong thing, of yeah. course, you know? So I don't know. It's like, there's a balance in that. I'm not sure how we got onto that. <laughs> yeah. that has to no, I think it's just this, this idea of acknowledging your power or not, right? Like, I but think intelligence isn't power, if that's yeah. where you're coming well, from with that. Maybe not power. It can be a power, though. Like, if you have, I mean, I have maybe 0.00001% of Joe's audience, but I still recognize that there are like thousands of people that are listening to me. I didn't necessarily choose them, or, you know, is it? my responsibility, I think we've had this conversation before, like, is it my responsibility that all these people are listening to me? Um, but the fact is that they are. And instead of, you know, I don't, maybe I think I said this, like using your power for good. To me, good is just acknowledging your gifts and acknowledging the position you're in. Like, I don't really know what what Joe Rogan would do, but it, it rubs me the wrong way that he consistently downplays his influence. Um like, there's something about that that sounds strange to me. Like, it's okay if you're just a regular guy, but recognize how much power you do have. You have the, you have, I mean, we've seen this in these people that were trying to take him down. Like, he does have a lot of uh, capital, maybe, or clout, right? There's something going on, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. I think he should have on whoever he wants on his podcast. I don't need to, uh, you know, say who he should talk to or who he shouldn't. Um, but I think that just baseline, like, wow, I really have the power to influence people. People are listening to me. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like, <clears throat> I don't know, this, this might be a really crass uh, way to think about this, but it reminds me of like the, the ideal woman is beautiful, but doesn't think she is. Mm. Right. From a man's perspective. Right. It's like a woman who it, but I guess what you're saying is no, because a woman who doesn't think she's beautiful, but is, is going to end up hurting a lot of guys. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. But then it's like, okay, so she acknowledges that she's attractive and it, it warps 
the time space continuum for guys or or I guess lesbians or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but then if that becomes too prominent in her consciousness, it becomes a big problem. Yeah. Right. Both for her and the way she acts and her sense of self-worth then gets tied up in that and you know it leads to all sorts of issues yeah it's a so it's a tension for sure yeah it's it's it has to be nuanced um because that also the sort of lack of acknowledgement that you have the capacity to have lots and lots of men desire you and if you draw if you're not conscious of that then you can just sort of opt out of any form of responsibility you know right it's not my problem that you know i wore this dress and it made everyone feel crazy like yeah I'm just being me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and I wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit about your experience as a child um, and what you felt as a child that I think you were reminded of one of the first times you took psychedelics, which is also an experience I think I had, which, you, you know. Mean when I shit my pants? <laughs> that experience? No. No. A different one, different childhood experience. (laughs) Um, Where I think like, and my sort of one of the overwhelming themes of when I did psychedelics as well, uh, psilocybin was this sort of memory that this world that I had stepped into through psychedelics was a world that I had come from. It wasn't like I was so special to be introduced to this new world that not everyone had the capacity to see. It was like I came from here, as did everybody else. Right. And and I, as a child, I think, I mean, the experience that I had was sort of this very intense feeling that a lot of the pain and confusion that I had as a child, which was quite high, um, came from that I was having like a existential spiritual crisis. Like I came into the world, I thought like, what the hell is this place? I don't want to be here. Everyone's mad at each other and not happy. I came from this beautiful, wonderful land. I would like to go back there and take everyone with me. But I had no words for that, of course, and nobody was talking to me about it. Um, I think also like, isn't don't people say something like, like babies from, or uh, toddlers or something? like from X age to this other age are basically on psychedelics. Like that's sort of how they're embodying themselves. Um, But, you know, what the difference is between we all came from here and just forgot versus I'm really special because I was just shown something that, you know, not everyone gets to see or not everyone has the capacity to see. And that's like a different kind of angle to take, I guess, or approach. Yeah, it reminds me of those videos you see on YouTube when they they take a, an animal that's been raised in captivity and release it into the wild. I think maybe that's why it's so compelling for us to see that. Because even, you know, a chimp that was born in a zoo, raised in a zoo, and then as an adult is released into the wild there's some deep biological memory, mm-hmm. right? That that animal's never experienced a jungle, but somehow that animal's like, ah, this is, I get it. This is where I came from. This is why I'm the way I am. And I think, you know, in that sense, the experience with psychedelics probably fueled a lot of the 
the work I've done in terms of writing books, right? Because both those books are about getting back to where we right. came from. Or right. what, you know, it's like being released into the wild again or something. Um, but the experience that I think you're referring to that I talked about in Vegas is the first time I took psychedelics, which was Halloween night 1980 uh, in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. Um, the feeling I had was like, this is totally familiar. Like, yeah. this is so familiar that this is more me and more kind of like home than not tripping. Right. And that was the overriding feeling. It was mushrooms the first time. And then I um, got my hands on some LSD and, and did a lot of LSD, and um, which I'm not recommending to anyone, by the way. This was just something that, for me, felt very like, I really want to explore this. Like, there's something here I need to learn, and I want to go back until I figure it out. And... Um, yeah, it was, it was an important part of my education for a good five or six years after that, probably. Um, but yeah, there was this feeling. So to put it in context, I had this feeling when I was a kid, um, that I had come from a place that was safe and beautiful and interesting and I really loved it and that and now I'm here and unlike you I had a pretty good family situation there was a lot of love and kindness and so I didn't feel that hostility that you talk about um, but I still felt like this I felt uncomfortable not in my family but I felt uncomfortable in America right and, and in the 20th century and you know the Vietnam was war was raging and there was the whole sort of counterculture movement I was born in 1962 so you know I was six years old in 1968 kind of vaguely aware hippies and riots and people were riled up about stuff and there was like my aunt was playing really cool music at her place and my parents were playing less cool music. <laughs> um, but there was like, there were these worlds that were interesting and, and conflictive and all that. Anyway, I, I had this feeling of like, um, yeah, I am from, I came from this place that was great and I'll go back to this place that was great. So just sort of relax and enjoy the ride and then as I started to get older and my brain became more verbal and I started thinking in words and I actually I was conscious of feeling like, oh, I'm thinking in words now. There's a voice in my head that's using words to say things, which is really slowing me down. Yeah. You know, I definitely felt like, fuck, I'm not thinking as fast as I as I was. Uh -huh. It's slowing down because it's now becoming linguistic. Uh. And but it's more um, sort of 
articulate and exact. So there's, it's a trade-off. But anyway, I felt like I'm forgetting this feeling of safety. And it's going to be really important as I get older because I'm getting further and further away from that memory of, of that place that I came from, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years ago, as it turns into 15, 16, you know, like I'm, I'm losing it. So it's probably earlier, it's probably 13, 14, where I was like, okay, I'm losing this memory. So what I need to do is I need to convert this memory into words so that I'll be able to carry it forward in this package because I don't have the immediate experience anymore. So it's almost like I need to, you know, write a myth or something mm -hmm. and the myth will contain the meaning, mm -hmm. right? Um, because I can't hold the meaning in my brain anymore. My right. brain's changed. Right. So I had that feeling of like, okay, plant a flag here and, you know, intentionally remember this. Remember it in words, remember it in whatever form you can take into the future. And then when I, I took mushrooms that night, I was like, oh, I, I feel it again. I remember it, it in meaning again, mm -hmm. right? The, part of that familiarity was this absolute shedding of fear of mortality and fear of you know, am I going to be a success in my life? Am I going to have enough money? Am I going to have these things that, you know, everyone's clamoring to try to get in college? Right. And, uh, and so that kind of like nakedness and fearlessness, which is not to say courage necessarily, just the absence of fear and ambition and, and all these things. Um, like anxiety. Right. Yeah. It was the absence of anxiety. It's yeah. like, because at that age, what, I was 18 or something, you're like, what's my life going to be? Right. What am I going to do? <laughs> like, you're about to be like thrown overboard and you don't know if you can swim right, and you right, don't know right. where you're going to swim to and you don't know how cold the water is. And, you know, everybody's terrified what's going to happen. And it gave me this sense of like, it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. I'm going to be here you know, five, six, seven decades, whatever. And then I'll just go back to that wonderful, beautiful, easy place. And it doesn't fucking matter. Just have fun. Yeah. And so that was incredibly um, releasing. And as I said, I, I had the memory anyway, but it, it made it immediate. And so I think that kind of opened up my whole life in a sense, you know, because at that point I wasn't, I stopped worrying about like, am I going to go to graduate school? Am I going to go to medical school? Am I going to do, uh, who gives a shit? I'm going to go to Alaska. I'm going to skip a year, fucking hitchhike to Alaska, have adventures and, you know, see what the fuck is going on out there. Yeah. So yeah, it, it was uh, it was pivotal. Is that the experience you wanted me yes. to talk about? Yeah, it was. Okay. Um, and but yeah, like this whole concept then that I think led you into the future, which ultimately sort of influenced you to not take psychedelics as frequently as you were earlier, because you had this recognition that you didn't necessarily need them right. to provide you with that window anymore. 
Well, because I think I felt like I I got outside the house. Right. Right. So now I'm on the other side of the window. I'm actually out in the yard with the birds and the bugs and all that stuff. Right. And yeah, I took psychedelics. I have no idea. Like I didn't keep count or anything, but, um, you know, I'd say I probably had between 50 and 100 experiences between the time I was 18 that first night and maybe 27, 28, something like that when it started tapering off. And those were years when I was traveling as much as I possibly could. You know, I was in Asia for a year and a half and I went back to New York for nine months or something, made a bunch of money. Then I did that long trip through um, Mexico and Guatemala, ending in the Scorpion, staying in Tikal, which some people have heard about who listen to this podcast. Um, if not, I recommend you you look up, uh, what's it called, that uh, that storytelling podcast that I did. Oh, Risk? Risk, yeah. 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 I did an episode of Risk. It's the Risk podcast, I think, and they they did a really good job of like editing it and adding sound effects and stuff. That's probably the best way to hear that story. But anyway, I was just traveling a lot. I was um, in amazing places. And sometimes I would like the first time was at Monte Alban, which is this um, amazing uh, ruins. I think it's Olmec outside of Oaxaca, Mexico. And I was there with friends and um, we, so it's on this uh, mountaintop that they flattened out and they built all, built all this this complex mm. of structures on the top. And so we sort of went over the side of the hill and hid in some bushes as the sun went down. It was the night of the full moon. And then uh, they shut it down. They, clo- they closed the gates. And, you know, everybody was gone. And then we went back up at, once it was dark. And we were the only people there. It was fucking awesome. And we spent the night there, you know, tripping our faces off. Ended up being kind of weird because it got super cold and (laughs) we weren't prepared for that. And anyway, that's a whole story. Um, But I I got into this idea of like, oh, I can sort of just hide in an amazing place and wait for them to close and then come out and, you know, either did it in the Taj Mahal in India and some other places. So... That was pretty fun. This is not official advice. <laughs> do not. No, no. I'm not recommending that you do this either. One of our party in that first night did get busted because we were all, it got so cold that we went into one of the, the there are these like little tunnel things built into some of the buildings. And we went in there and we were all just like huddled like kittens against each other trying to survive and one guy had a blanket he was smart enough to bring a blanket and he went out it was this really brightly colored mexican blanket and we also had a jug of cheap mexican wine like a a gallon jug or something like a big jug and we had all been drinking for this wine but then he took the what was left of it or maybe just the empty bottle and went and laid out in the plaza under the full moon with his bright blanket Mm -hmm. and this big jug of wine empty jug of wine and one of the guards came up and like walked around at night or something and found this guy lying there with an empty gallon jug of wine and he was like yeah get the fuck out so they took him out and we we didn't get caught uh but 
Yeah, don't recommend it necessarily. Um, yeah. Well, and I think like this whole idea of like this concept of integration is really interesting to me because I feel like before I took psychedelics, I sort of saw this concept of integration as you integrate the lessons that you learned during the experience, which I still think is valid and what you should be doing. But also after having done psychedelics, I mean, first of all, I think I realized that I like it's a fa it was a fascinating experience for me because I did them once when I was 20. Uh, but I'm not sure like it was such a strange, confusing experience that I'm not really sure how much they affected me and how much it was just based on placebo. I mean, I definitely took mushrooms and it was definitely something, but but not that much. It wasn't very significant. Um, but when I took them again so many years later now, right? So like I've lived a good amount of life and I consider myself a pretty spiritual person. And I realized upon taking them, not just that I feel like I came from that same kind of world that you imagined, but also that I exist in that world a lot already without the psychedelics that I sometimes feel very distracted by that world because I'm sort of put into this sort of more psychedelic universe. And so the psychedelics just showed me like, hey, you already know this place. You, right. you are here and you're interacting with this room quite frequently or this world outside of the room, whatever metaphor we're using. Um, and so then when I started to think about integration after that, it felt like it's not just integration of the lessons you learned, but actually integration of that world, right? And to right. recognize that you don't need the tool or the practice or the medicine or the substance to experience the out, that outside world. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't hear that spoken that about world. Right. Yeah. So this concept of like, you know, people say this a lot, you know, I, I'm continuing to take psychedelics because I feel like there are more lessons to be learned or there are more insights to be gained, right. which I don't argue with. I think, you know, I could see myself doing it again at some point or some taking something different, but <laughs> it's the call to prayer. <laughs> Yeah. It's hard to do much when it occurs. <laughs> it almost feels sacrilegious or something. Yeah. We're in a Muslim country and every, I don't know how many times per day, but. Like every, five or six, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. The, down at the mosque, someone starts singing. That means it's uh, time to pray if you're Muslim. It's a good synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, in the the analogy I used at the presentation in Vegas that for me, psychedelics are like teachers in and a good teacher doesn't teach you what to think. She teaches you how to think. And the whole purpose of being a good teacher is to make yourself unnecessary to your students. Right. right? And so. You know, for example, I studied literature as an undergraduate and quite quickly I realized that my relationship was not with the teachers. I mean, I did have relationships with the teachers, but they were introducing me to how to read, how to engage with literature. And once I learned that, then it's like, OK, I'm done here. Right. 
not done with literature. I'll read literature the rest of my life. I'll take so much pleasure and insight and, you know, this will continue to be an important relationship for me. But I don't need these teachers to show me what or how to read anymore. Right. I was really eager to go off and do it on my own, right? And I feel like that's the mistake that people make with psychedelics. Um, or you could think about a therapist, right? A therapist, the, the point is that they want to get you to a place where you don't, don't need, need therapy anymore. anymore. Right. A right. good therapist, right? Right. And I think psychedelics are the same, that the healthy way to manage a relationship with psychedelics for me was to realize that I was at a place where I don't need psychedelics anymore and I never really needed them, but they they helped me see things I wanted to see and now I see them. Right. And so, you know, my relationship with them changed because I sort of felt that. I had that gut sense that like, okay, uh, they didn't become scary to me, but I, I felt like, uh, like when I started to think like somebody wanted to trip, I'd be like, okay, let's trip. And then I, 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 as we got closer to it, I just think, do I really want to do this? Like, why am I doing this? Right. Why am I doing it? And it wasn't even like, oh, am I going to hurt my brain? Or is there some some biological reason not to do this? None of that. It was just like, it felt disrespectful. And so the way I explained it in Vegas was I felt like I was taking up a seat in a seminar after the point where I had graduated. And like there are other people waiting to get in. This right. this teacher's attention is very limited and they've been very generous with me and I'm still sitting here and they're thinking like, dude, why don't you go live your fucking life? Why are you still here? You know? Yeah. And so that's how I felt. And then I ignored that, of course, and um, as we do. And then I had some pretty difficult experiences with psychedelics that um, sort of increasingly made it clear to me that it was time to leave the nest and sort of get the fuck out and stop yeah. doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very valid that we can develop a codependent relationship with therapists, with mentors, with any kind of psychedelic or drug, I'm like literally anything. I think we're limited in our understanding of codependency to think it's just about people, like, or at least dependency, right? Like we can become... Um, reliant upon these yeah. people to kind of yeah keep us safe like we're in a little a little nest well that's the thing right it's like you mistake the messenger for the message yes totally and so and and that leads to i don't know if you're done with this particular subject but it's a segue into what i wanted to talk with you about which is your relationship with astrology because, I mean, not to overstate it, but it's been an issue that you and I have had trouble understanding each other on. Because I come, I come to astrology from the perspective of sort of investigating paranormal phenomenon, right? Which, you know, I've studied a lot with Stanley Krippner, who's one of the world's premier investigators of this kind of stuff. And so I, I come at it and say, okay, what's the scientific basis for this? What studies have been done? 
what kind of correlation is there between, you know, the predictive value of someone's astrological sign and their actual behavior and all that. And so I come at it saying, well, there is none. It's all bullshit. Fuck it. Right. This is a bunch of nonsense. And I think your take on it is like is saying, okay, but that's not the point. The point is you're confusing the messenger and the message, right? Yeah. That there's meaning. I don't know why I'm I'm trying to summarize your <laughs> perspective on this, but this is where I've come anyway after, you know, you've been very patiently explaining things to me. And I think part of the confusion is that not all people, in fact, not most people in the world of astrology understand it the way you do. They're yeah. They're actually making scientific claims, which then makes it really easy to dismiss the whole thing because right. you've got these charlatans. Yeah. But it's the same thing with psychedelics, right? right. You've got charlatans saying, you will experience a miracle. Exactly. Your life will change. And then, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, well, psychedelics are useless and just for fucking hippie idiots. Right. So, I don't know, maybe you want to fill in the gaps there. Yeah, well, I think it's, a, like, I see my experience with an opinion about and practice with astrology to actually be very similar to that of psychedelics, because I think I see them both as tools or windows, um, but that don't really exist in mechanistic realms of true or false or right or wrong or proven and unproven, right? If you take ayahuasca or some sort of psychedelic and you have this experience where you, you know, any experience you have, if I were to come to you and say, well, prove that that's actually what you saw and it's not just something you made up, like that's a, it's an absurd question. Right. Um, And yeah, I mean, I remember the first, astrologer that I had on my podcast said astrology is a science. And I remember cringing because it's so not the way that I approach this at all. I think there's something like the point I think she was making was like, well, if you're born in the winter, you know, versus the summer, you come in into a world that's energetically very different. But I'm thinking like, but what about the other hemisphere? Right. Like, that's a ridiculous, right. like simple minded approach. Um, to me, I think my connection to Um, And what really interests me about astrology is far more in the realm of archetypal psychology and mythology and stories than it is actually that, you know, okay, the sky looked like this when you were born and therefore you are this kind of a person. Right. Because there's no way for me to prove that. There's no way for any of us to prove that. There's no way for us to prove um, that a synchronicity exists or means what we think it does, right? Like experience a synchronicity, experiencing one is inferring some kind of subjective meaning onto it, right? So if you say, you know, I need a sign that something is out there and you see a shooting star, one, it could just be a total coincidence, which is what, you know, someone who's very into like a scientific worldview would say. Um, you know, someone could say, oh, that means that there's something out there or, you know, give me a sign about what I'm, you know, am I supposed to be with my partner or something like all these signs that we experience in the world can mean anything we want them to. Right. Um, and I think, you know, when we're dealing, I, I think it's a, a great tragedy that we've sort of lost touch with realms that 
have to do with value and meaning and belief and faith. Um, I think all of the ways in which we felt extremely connected, like when we lived in hunter-gatherer societies, everything, we were like a part of, a part of this sort of like greater ecology. Um, and when we believed we were the center of the universe before there was like a, you know, heliocentric worldview. Um, but then once we sort of gained insight about what the cosmos looked like and developed these tools to explore it, instead of feeling like we were inter intricately connected to everything, it became like anything that we believe or that we create as a product of the self and therefore a projection and not something that's totally true. So the cosmos, instead of feeling like something that we were connected to and involved in and a part of, became something to like explore and to probe and to understand through scientific methodology. And I think, I think there's great like value in that. I just don't think it's everything. Um, and, and it's tough because I, I do feel like a lot of people who, who teach astrology or who practice astrology don't align with me. Um, and I think part of that is because I find great conflict in, um, the conflict, the conflict between science and meaning or belief, and also the conflict between spirituality and commodification of spirituality. Um, and I think a lot of astrologers believe astrology is true. And I'm, I'm not so sure. I, 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 how could I know? I don't know if it's true. Um, well, I mean, you could know in the sense of, of what I mentioned earlier, like there are studies saying, you know, are Aquarians more likely to give more money to charity than Virgos, you know, or right. whatever. Um, and the, those kinds of studies always come up with no statistical right. significance at all. But in, but in many ways that as a study wouldn't make sense because for two reasons, one, because we don't, the, the sky contains all the planets and the celestial bodies and the luminaries. So I am not just a Leo and you are not just an Aquarius. You have everything else in all these other signs, right? Yeah. Um, but you could still refine the methodology, right? But, but no, but this brings me to this, my second point, because if a Leo, for example, or let's use something different, the, the archetype of Mars, I think, is literally symbolic of both uh, cowardice and courage. It contains both. You can, if you were in Aries, which is ruled by the planet of Mars, that can represent as aggressiveness and anger, but also courage and bravery. So how could you develop a test to say, is this person, you know, have a lot of Aries energy right. or not? If the archetype of that planet or sign contains so many different variables. Right. Um, but I mean, isn't that the thing about astrology that it, it, it's it's really confusing and hard to think about, I think, because it has the trappings of science. Yes. Right. It's it's the geometry of where the stars are, the shapes. It's astronomical. That, yeah, it's astronomical. It's got all these technical names that astronauts use. It's you know, it's um, it's mathematical. Right. Because yeah. it's got the angle. How sharp is this angle? How sharp is that angle? Um, there's a lot of scientific jargon and imagery uh, associated with it. 
and there's a lot of calculation and it's very specific. Yeah. And yet you're saying in the end, what, where the meaning is, is ineffable and undefinable and super individual. And so it's almost like, I don't know, hypnosis, right? Like hypnosis is a science in a sense, because there are ways to measure who's got more or less hypnotic ability and how to induce hypnosis and the different systems in the body that it affects. And yet no one has any fucking clue what hypnosis really is. Right. Or to bring it home, psychedelics, right? You can measure out a very precise dose and, you know, this molecule is associated with this neurotransmitter and there are similarities to the. So a lot of science around psychedelics, but ultimately what you experience is unexplainable. Right. And as you say, unverifiable even. Right. I mean, there have been some, like, I don't know if you've heard about the Mars effect at all, but they measured, I think, a bunch of people, some of whom were athletes and some who weren't. And I think the study was looking at where Mars was uh, relative to the horizon and people who had Mars closer to the horizon generally had greater greater athletic ability than um, it's like a, it was one of the very, very few astrological scientific studies. That, really? Yeah, totally. Because people are Googling it right now. Oh, they should. They should absolutely Google the Mars effect. Um, and I, Rick Tarnas has also done a lot of work about it. But I think for him as well, his book Cosmos and Psyche is also very interpretive because he's looking throughout history and tracking um, astrological transits uh, that, you know, can be interpreted any which way or the other. Um, but I do think his book is great. Um, you, you sent me this quote from Carl Jung. Yeah. Astrology represents the sum of all the psychological knowledge of antiquity. What does that mean to you? Um, what does it mean to me? I guess, you know, for me, I see my personal experience in astrology as greatly helping me to understand my own psychology and the psychology of people around me. I think what, and, you know, I think it's unfortunate that Jung wasn't able to kind of talk more publicly about his use of astrology, but especially right. near the end of his life, he used it all the time with his clients. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think like you said at the beginning of this conversation, this idea that language was slowing you down mm. and was incredibly limiting. I find that to be the case, especially when discussing experience and um, the meaning of things. Right. Like so if I if I'm experiencing something in a certain way, sometimes it's quite difficult to explain that with psychological or scientific terminology. Right. But if we can turn to an archetype, and an archetype is really based on a story, right? So we have these collections of mythologies that are what then created the archetype, which is then what created the, or actually, let's say the archetype created the story, and the story created these traits that we see associated with signs or planets. Um, and I like to kind of take the traits and the characteristics away, and instead, like, I use and teach people the story, because I think we can relate to narrative in so many more ways than we can relate to psychological terminology or just random characteristics and traits that might be spit out from like a personality test, for example. Right. Because the fact, and that again goes back to the fact that these aren't, this isn't a scientific practice. Because if you hear a story, it's in 
can be interpreted in a myriad of different ways. I can relate to that story in one way, you can relate to it in another, but both ways of relating are valid. But again, it opens up this whole possibility of like, oh, wow, okay, I can understand myself through this story in a way that I was having a hard time articulating before. Right. I even understand myself through the way that I choose to relate to this story. Exactly. Maybe that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, right. But yeah, like the fact that we, it's like looking at a painting and you say that painting, an abstract painting particularly, that painting, you know, makes me think of a difficult moment in my childhood. And I say, that's funny. It makes me think of an orgasm. And someone else says, well, it makes me think of, you know, war. And it's like, right. How are you going to scientifically prove who's right and who's wrong? It's, right. an, it's as you said earlier, the question itself makes no sense. Right. And that's so, not the purpose of a painting. It's not to yeah. convey a particular feeling. Exactly. Generally, an yeah. abstract painting. Yeah. And so I think with Jung, I mean, Jung dealt in archetypal psychology. He was very much into the collective unconscious in these ways that all of us are kind of acting out certain stories throughout time in different ways. And the story itself can be different, but the kind of themes or content contained in those stories seems to be replicated throughout cultures in many right. different contexts and civilization or hunter-gatherer societies. We're all kind of dealing with these the same kind of archetypal nature. Um, and so I think astrology does as best as one could, in a way, to kind of take all of those archetypes and organize them to some capacity. Mm. Um, so there are 12 signs, which are ruled by these planets that have similar archetypal qualities. Um, and so we can kind of like place things into boxes, which I think as humans makes us feel like it's easier for us to understand things in that way. Um, and of course the risk, which I think is also the risk of psychedelics or the risk of any kind of spiritual practice is that because we can't prove things, it opens up the risk for us to take advantage of it or to treat it in an irresponsible way. Um, So just like one person can take psychedelics and be incredibly humbled and realize they need to change their life and start treating their child better. Trump could take that exact same amount of psychedelics, the same type and decide that he's going to start a nuclear war. Um, And I think we as humans now in this day and age are incredibly afraid of that which cannot be proven and that which we cannot control. Right. There's subjectivity is scary because we're not familiar with it, first of all. Like, we're not honest about it and we don't understand necessarily how it factors into our own lives. And we have seen 100% how people can take advantage of something that can't be proven and say something that isn't true and lead us into cults or wars Mm. or become cult leaders and all these things. Um, And so I think we see like, oh, that's not, quote, real or like, I don't have proof of that. And so therefore it's unsafe and therefore illegitimate. And I and I like, you know, the 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 teacher I had and who I studied with, I think I learned this lesson firsthand because I think I learned from someone who, in retrospect, I don't think was approaching this practice with as much honesty and self-reflection as I had wished. And there were a good two years there where I thought, fuck this practice. Like this is full of a bunch of charlatans and, you know, I don't really want to be associated with it. 
And instead, I kind of took a different approach, which was to say, to say, this has actually provided me with a lot of meaning. I do think I'm pretty self-reflective, and I see how others have used this tool in a really responsible way. Instead of dismissing it because of its capacity to be used um, in an unhealthy way, can I still hold on to its value and just approach it with a lot of discernment? Right. And isn't part of that kind of like what I was saying earlier about literature teachers, like, you know, okay, we're going to learn how to do this by reading this book and this short story and this poem that I'm presenting to you. But then later you're going to go do this yourself. Yeah. You're not, if I understand correctly, when you teach these workshops for people, you're not telling them what's true about them. You're saying, here are ways to think about it. Now go think about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So in a sense, is astrology kind of like dream interpretation and are archetypes like the dreams of societies? Yes. Right. And so Jung, that's the collective unconscious, is Jung is saying in the Western world, we're all kind of dreaming the same dreams in a way. Like there are some dreams that we've all had because they're dreams of our culture, of our civilization. Right. Yeah. And I think what was really interesting, I mean, I just read Memories, Dreams, Reflections for the first time, and I know you just read it again after many years. And I really just so relate to the way that he approached these things because he was a psychologist and very, very well read and like psychiatrist. Actually. Yeah, well, psychiatrist, yes. but basically developed. I don't think there psychiatrist. were psychologists. No, then. but I think he basically like kind of created oh, psychology. Okay. Well, <laughs> so I'm calling him a psychologist. Yeah. Um, but he also was incredibly spiritual right. uh, and and Swiss. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. He was such a freak. Yeah. Such totally. an interesting guy. Um, and he and I think the way he approached these things was with such a degree of groundedness. And even at the end of his life, he, he was like, I can't tell you if this stuff was true or not. Like, I don't know if there's a God, but here's what I've experienced. Um, so he was always sort of prefacing things with this kind of disclaimer of like, of course, I can't prove any of this, but here's what I've experienced. And this is what I'm led to believe based on those experiences. Much like Joe Rogan. Uh-huh. Has anyone ever segued from Carl Jung to Joe Rogan <laughs> no, before? No, you just won that prize. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think, and there's there's something here too about, like, I've, I've thought a lot about what, like, what is spirituality? Uh, like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Um, and to me, I think it has something to do with connectivity. So what I mean by that is, like, if you take psychedelics or you practice astrology or you just have a spiritual practice or you incorporate spirituality into your life, you see how you are connected as a human to everything around you, to the planet, to other people. You see that like, there's no way for you to understand it a hundred percent or to describe it or to quantify it or to measure it. But you can see that you're connected to everything. Like you are literally a part of some kind of ecology. Um, and by way of that connection, you start to think, okay, like this life isn't necessarily some meaningless simulation, but if if I'm a part of ecology, then I have this, I'm empowered to like treat the planet in one way or another, or mm. I'm, 
I feel empowered or like I should, you know, treat people well, not because someone's telling me to, just because, wow, like I feel so connected to everything right, and everyone it around is me. me and I am it. And I right. mean, every fucking religion comes right. down to that. Right. right. Like, Which is where there's like all these people that use this terminology around like ascension and like 5D and that this right. spiritual practice is like beaming them up somewhere else to me is completely opposite of what I believe. Right. Like if your practices aren't grounding you and like making you so much more humble and where you're not seeing your power and your responsibility because of that intricate connection that you have to everything that's going on, then you're like not doing it right. Um, and, it, and it's going to hurt. It, it feels yeah. bad, right? Yeah. Because I mean, we talk about how everyone wants to be connected to something larger than themselves. And if I read you properly, what you're saying is we are. Right. That's what spirituality is telling you. Yeah. And you're saying it, it, you know, it brings humility, but it's a kind of humility that feels really good because yes. what it means is I don't need to worry about my ego. You know, it's kind of like the insight I had that night yeah. in, in the Finger Lakes because uh, it doesn't fucking matter. I'm part of this huge thing. <laughs> I just I just did this movement with my hand and hit a lamp. So that's what you heard. Um, I'm part of this huge thing. And so the outcome of my particular little story doesn't really matter. I'm just here to observe and and be integrated. But and yet I think does matter. Right. I mean, like I, I sort of try to explain my obsession with stories in a way that, you know, if you're if if we, because we are, if civilization is telling a story that resources are limitless, for example, we're not going to treat nature, we're going to take more than we need. If we tell a story that nature nature is brutal and out to get us and dangerous, then we're not really probably going to spend much time in nature nor treat it well. Um, if we tell ourselves a story that we're like unlovable and unworthy of genuine connection, we're not going to give someone the opportunity to prove us up to, to prove us wrong. Right. Um, and so I think that's really where I kind of approach these things. And it's the same for psychedelics. Like what is the story and the narrative and the meaning that you're extracting from this experience? And if it's anything other than like, I want to be a better person for myself and for everyone around me and for the planet, then what are you doing? Um, I, and I think that's where that sort of like power and responsibility comes in. I think we, it's a lot easier for us to say like, oh, this is, this means nothing. Life is a simulation. You know, my life doesn't really matter. And yeah, does it matter as far as like changing the world? No. But does it matter in your little personal world? I think so. You know, sure. how, how you influence the people you love people, and your yeah. community and yeah. and even just the little bit of land that you have, you know, like that is meaningful and um, legitimate. So and you were saying earlier, you were talking about how people interpret signs mm. however they want. Yeah. Um, it made me think of something that's interesting. Like, I wonder to the extent that <clears throat> we interpret signs as meaning this or that. We cut ourselves off from the mystical. Yes. And I'm not explaining this well, but I feel like this impulse to say, oh, that means this. Right. 
which is a scientific impulse, I guess, right? Like uh, an impulse towards certainty and measurement and correlation and demonstration and, and repeatability comfort, and right? all that, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, because we can predict the behavior yeah. of this molecule, then we don't need to worry about it. Yeah. You can't predict the behavior of a fucking <clears throat> leopard walking through your village, right? right. So... We do have this sort of almost instinctive desire to explain things. But the more we explain things, the more we cut ourselves off from the inexplicable. Yes. Even the perception of it. Yeah. Right? Like you don't even see it. Like I've had a bunch of... It's kind of a frustration in my life that I've had experiences that I've told stories about and that are inexplicable, really bizarre. I told one of them in Vegas, the yeah. thing about meeting the guys in Mexico. And um, that if you look at it, you say, well, what are the odds of that happening? Like infinitesimal, there's no way. So then people say, well, what did it mean? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't fucking know. Right. I don't know. And I've had a series of experiences that are so bizarre. You know, like that woman I met in, in Alaska, and then I met her again in Midtown Manhattan. Right. We just recognized each other in a restaurant like three years later. And then several years after that, I'm walking down an alley in Bangkok and there she is, the only other person in this alley. And like, oh my God, what did it mean? Well, nothing apparently because I never saw her again and I didn't marry her and we didn't have kids and right. it would have been a great origin story, but whatever it was an origin story for never happened. Yeah. I mean, and I think to me, I look at the, I mean, and cause I've also like, <laughs> tried to interpret signs to my great detriment in the past and had to learn from experience about this. And what I sort of landed on is that like signs and symbols or synchronicity is they're not meant to mean something specifically. Maybe they're just meant to mean like, think about this or notice it, right? right. Because this, you tell the story about seeing this woman who you don't know anymore, who you never had a intense connection to, but you keep referring back to that story as this really sort of magnificent synchronistic event in your life. So how has just that experience overall led you to think a lot about synchronicity and whether like there's some greater thing that's happening than what you're aware of? Like yeah, that's I mean, enough. <laughs> to me, it feels like an accidental exposure. Right. It's like a, What's that called? A nip slip? Yeah. It's like a nip slip of the universe. Yeah. Like like something was revealed there. Right. Something unintentional, and I don't know what. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, it makes me think, well, how many, how many times did that almost happen? Right. How many times, how many people do I know whom I almost ran into, but they right. were walking down that alley five minutes before or the day before? Right. And even if it's not necessarily like a coincidence or a synchronicity, then you start to think like, was I meant to run into this person or communicate with this person or spend this evening with this person who then became someone really important into my life? Like what was, what led us to meet each other? What what led me to run into that person who I didn't know at the farmer's market? And then we became great friends. And then through that connection, all these other things in my life happened as a result of that connection. Right. That doesn't necessarily like resonate as a, as a synchronicity at the time, but it's like, is there something at greater at play here that you needed to meet that person to meet this person to do this thing and then to do that thing? Like, I don't know. I have no way to prove that. There was a, I remember when I first started like five or so years ago and my life was in the toilet 
and I was just learning about astrology and, you know, I think really felt like I was at a horrific time in my life, but felt very confident that it's where I needed to be. In and the that, toilet? Yeah. Yes. 100%. In plumbing school? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, and I was sort of struck by that because I thought this is so horrible. Why do I feel so confident that I need to be here? Like mm. that struck me as odd. Um, and so I think I started just sort of organically looking into things. And I remember stumbling across a quote or someone said something that said, uh, coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. And I just thought that was like so perfect because we're not meant to know these things. Like, I don't think the, I, I don't really want to know what's going to happen after I die or the meaning of life or where I came from or what the the universe means. Like, I'm actually much more sort of satiated by the question than the answer hmm. um, and the sort of ways that I can look at the world and think like, this is so magical and I could never in my lifetime fully comprehend it. And that's so humbling and like keeps me incredibly inspired and interested because I'm not trying to find the answer. I'm just sort of trying to engage with the mystery of all of it. And that to me is incredibly valuable and fascinating. Yeah. It makes me think of something I've talked about with Rick Beato when I had him on my podcast. For those of you who don't know, Rick Beato <clears throat> has a thing on YouTube called What Makes This Song Great. He's a producer, multi-instrumentalist, and he unpacks um, popular music and sort of like gets into the technical details of how it was recorded and how it's written and the time signatures and how the instrumentation and all this stuff. And it's fucking awesome. And you know, we've talked about how some musicians get so technically focused that it becomes difficult for them to hear the magic in the music because they're so tuned in, literally tuned into, you know, what key is it in and what's going on behind the scenes to create the effect, mm -hmm. right? It's like a magician, a professional magician is never going to think that anyone, that magic happens, yeah. right? They're the most skeptical people <laughs> in the world because they know the tricks and yeah. they know how easy it is to trick people. But there is magic. I mean, music is magical. No yeah. one can explain how you can make these sounds in this sequence and this. And why it affects you in a certain way. And it makes way, you yeah. cry. Right. Like, you know, no one knows. No one has ever explained that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Like, if you get too caught up in trying to find answers, you, and that's what I was saying, like, the clarity limits perception that you're, yeah. you want to know, okay, I asked for a sign, and as soon as that happened, that dog started barking. What does it mean? Well, maybe nothing, maybe a lot, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, son of Sam fucking murdered people because the dog was talking to him. You yeah. was before your time. <laughs> that was in New York, around the time you were born, actually, mm -hmm. I think. In the 80s, there's yeah. this uh, serial killer who thought that uh, the neighbor's dog was telling him to go kill people. Right. I mean, not the whole, like, helter-skelter Right, the Beatles were <laughs> yeah. telling the Mansons. Yeah, and I it, and I know. think, yeah, I just, I would, I feel like I want to, as much as I can, encourage people, like, to, you know, of course, like, a great deal of harm can be and has been done as a result of people misinterpreting signs or trying to 
add meaning to something incorrectly or that isn't meant to have meaning at all. Um, and instead of like dismissing the, the subjective thing or the spiritual thing because of that, to use it as a motivation to be more discerning when engaging in that realm. So just because, you know, uh, Donald Trump could take ayahuasca and become more of a psychopath is not a reason not to take ayahuasca. It's a reason to take ayahuasca and be far more self-reflective and discerning about how it's affecting you right. because you know what it's capable of. Or not take ayahuasca, but be far more discerning <laughs> right. and reflective. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, in the end, it, the drugs don't matter. Yeah. And I would say in the end, I mean, I don't know, maybe you disagree with this, but in the end, it's not about the position of the planets. It's about what are you thinking? What does the position and the conjunction of these different celestial things on your chart, what does it make you think about? What does it make you realize that you might not have realized if you hadn't thought about this, right. if you hadn't thought about you know, okay, how does the presence of this feminine energy play out in your life when you were in your early 30s or right. something? You know, like there are all these different questions that arise from this yeah. that you might not ask otherwise. And that doesn't mean that you have clear answers. It just means they're interesting questions. Yeah, right. So it's like if you really relate to this story but can kind of see yourself relating to maybe like the shadow expression and the healthy expression of this story, then when you go out in the world and you see yourself embodying one or the other, you know that. Like you have that knowledge now and you can you can adjust yourself accordingly. Um, yeah, it's ironic because I feel like I'm probably an astrologer who looks at charts <laughs> like the least frequently of all astrologers, because I, I think it's important to learn what the archetypes are. And I think it's meaningful to learn about your natal chart and to have some kind of understanding of what's going on in the cosmos. But to me, it's an experiential practice. It's about moving through the world and having an experience that was affected you in a deep way and saying like, Oh, like what was happening? I wonder, like, what could I learn? How could I learn more about this experience by leaning into the archetypal nature of whatever transits happening or what's ever happening in my chart? Not like I'm anticipating this thing. And so therefore I'm going to have an experience that's going to be like X, Y, Z. It right. never works like that. Right. Um, so I tell people like, I'm going to teach you a bunch of stories and then go out in the world as the moon mo moves through those, you know, stories, constellations and see what happens. What do you experience? And let's come back and talk about it. And you're like, I'm not telling you anything that isn't inside of you already. I'm just sort of like reminding you of it. And then you can access that whenever you want. Right. Uh, before we forget, this has all been a, you know, a very long, um, what are they called? Those, those long commercials that they do? Pub an infomercial. An infomercial. <laughs> <laughs> really? It wasn't an infomercial? So like it wouldn't be an infomercial. <laughs> well, no, but I, if we release this today is Sunday, March 20th, and we're yeah. going to release it as soon as possible. I think so. And we're both releasing it we're independently -release, yeah. on our podcast. Um, and you're doing a, a lunar circle. So briefly explain yeah. what that is. So if you're listening to this now, if you're one of those people who downloads the podcast right before away. Before March 28th. Before yeah. March 28th, 2022, <laughs> um, you can experience the lunar circle with <laughs> Anya Katz. Um, yeah, so I basically, it was like, I think my COVID project uh -huh. uh, 
a year ago, I did it. I've done it three times before. I sort of engaged in this experiment with myself back when I learned astrology, which was to track the moon through the sky over one or many cycles. So the moon has a 28-day cycle. All the planets have a specific cycle. The sun is a year. This is why I have a birthday every year. It's a solar return. Um, but the moon is the quickest. The moon moves through the entire sky every 28 days, which means uh, it moves through each of the constellations in every month over and over and over again. Mm. Um, and so I set on an experiment uh, many years ago where in order to learn more about myself, that I would understand where the moon was at any given time. So, okay, the moon's now in Aries. What's happening for me? I have Mars in Aries. My ascendant is in Aries. So what am I experiencing as the moon moves over that part of my chart? Okay, now in the next two and a half days, the moon's in Taurus, then Gemini, then Cancer, then Leo. And so as the moon moves from the sky, we use it as a tool for self-reflection, basically. Um, and this, in my own personal life, taught me a lot about my own personal relationship to these mythological stories that underpin the constellations and their archetypes. Um, and so I decided a year ago that I wanted to like teach people how to do that for themselves. Um, and so I decided to create uh, something called the Lunar Circle, where we all together do this experiment together. Um, and so we track the moon through her cycle. How about her. have this experience together? Because it's not really an experiment. Well, yeah. You see, you're getting scientific again. Yeah, that's okay, that's it. fine, that's fine. Um, yeah, that's fine, an experience. Uh, well, that's <laughs> interesting. In Spanish, experimentar means mm. to experience. Yeah. I think. Spanish speakers out there might be going, no, it doesn't, you idiot. But I think yeah. it does. Well, I think experiment is an interesting concept. Like, I don't actually believe that science and belief should be 100% separated. I don't think that they are. It's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, and so an experiment is what? You see what happens. It's not like you set out to prove something necessarily. You're just kind of conducting this experiment because nothing might happen, right? Like, I'm not here to say you will experience a miracle. I don't know what you're going to experience. Um but yes, it's it's an experience to learn more about yourself and you take it slowly. So we, we focus on one uh, mythological story, one sign uh, at a time. And I teach you about each of them. I teach you how to read an astrology chart. I teach you uh, to understand what's in your own astrology chart. And then as the moon moves through each part of your chart, you go off into the world and you see what's happening in your life. Mm. Are you in an argument with someone? Are you supporting someone? Do you experience some kind of synchronicity? Are you feeling really depressed? Are you feeling really happy? Um, and then we come back into the circle and we all share what experiences we had. Right. And the purpose of that was one, to teach people how to be like mindful and reflective and understand that they exist in a magical world all the time if they're kind of quiet and receptive enough to hear it. But then also that your experience of this story or this archetype, or this sign, or this planet is going to be different than someone else's, and both are valid. And so I wanted to bring mm. everyone back together so everyone can say, well, I experienced Aries as a lot of anger and frustration, but this other person experienced it as having a lot of courage and feeling really like vital and able to go out and be more brave in the world than they normally could. And both are valid and real. Right. Um, so sort of together, we learn about the complexity of an archetype. Um, and yeah, it's been really cool. And I think this is probably the last time I'll do it because I have a lot of other things 
uh, astrology and otherwise that I like to do. But we're doing it again for the Aries new moon. Um, and this one, yeah, starts on March 30th. So enrollment Mark, closes And how many sessions is it? It's six three-hour lectures. <laughs> Two and a half, three hours. I think the last one's a bit shorter, but three, um, six quite long lectures by me. Then we have um, five uh, group discussions. So one of the, you don't have to attend the lectures because it's just me talking. So as long as you can watch it in 24 hours, it's recorded. Um, then there are five like hour long. What do you mean in 24 hours? Well, because the way that it works is like I teach you before the moon moves into Aries, uh, Taurus and Gemini, I teach you about Aries, Taurus and Gemini. So the point is that you want to have some familiarity with how this archetype might show up before mm -hmm. the moon moves through it. Oh, I see. So you don't want to like watch the lecture a week later or you're going to, you're going to miss the experience of, right, yeah. Right. Um, like you might be able to reflect back, but it's sort of missing the point. Right. So as long as you can watch the lecture within 24 hours or attend live, we go through the week, we experience the lunar transits together, we experience the archetypes, um, and then we come back into a group discussion and talk about it. Um, and then I also have a, a windows where people can come ask me, like I'm calling it office hours, to just like come hop into Zoom if you had a question about something I taught in the lecture, or if you weren't there live, so you couldn't ask live, I, I clarify it. And like, um, does do you do everyone's chart? Mm -hmm. That's included in the deal. <clears throat> yeah, I give everyone their their natal chart and also um, what the transits look like for the moment of the new moon in correlation with their chart. Like what people sometimes don't understand is like they have a natal chart, which is what the sky looked like when they were born. But then after they're born and forever, the sky keeps moving and changing in ways that affect and influence and um, aspect different parts of their chart. So like a uh, birthday is when the sun returns to the point in the sky that it was when you were born. Um, and that's just one version of a transit. Um, so yeah, I give them that. And then I also, I, this is like the most <laughs> uh, sort of um, Virgo work that I do in the course, but I actually give them a calendar where I say the exact moment, depending on their location, that the moon hits their Mars, hits their Venus, moves into their fourth house, their fifth house, so they can really recognize like, okay, when the moon hit my Mercury at 2.36 this afternoon, I was giving a lecture. Isn't that interesting? Um, what does that tell me about my own Mercury? So I, I give them their chart, the transits, and then I also type out this very long uh, calendar that tells them exactly when the moon hits all these points in their chart hmm. to kind of help them think about what that means for them. All right, last question. Do I get a complimentary admission for advertising this course? Uh, yeah, of course. All right. Great. So if you want to learn astrology with Dr. Fur. Ladies and gentlemen, I will be in attendance. <laughs> I'll be sitting in the back of the room. Yeah. You know, this is funny because I think the, the very first time I ever reached out to you that we like ever communicated was I was trying to convince you to have my astrology teacher on your podcast. That was our my first. That was your that plot. Was, that was my plot. Because I, I heard you talking so much about psychedelics and I hadn't really done them at that point. But the way that you talked about it reminded me so much of the way that I had used astrology as the sort of like tool for self-reflection and to gain insight into myself and 
develop some kind of like spiritual way of moving through the world. And so I like made a case to you that if not him, you should have someone on to talk about astrology. Little did I know you were much more skeptical of it than I, I imagined. But. Wow. Wow. Anyway, like, we've I, come a long way. It's like a transit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the sun must be in the same place or something. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I will be in attendance in uh, Anya. Where where do people go to find this? Um, Anya Kotz, A N Y A K A A T S dot com. <laughs> Forgot to spell my name. Uh, slash lunar circle. Slash and spots are limited. Like, what's the? Um, no, they're probably not limited uh, unless things get really out of hand. But um, I think we'll probably be be fine. Um, and yeah, again, you people, you'll see the times of the lectures listed you don't have to attend those live once you click the like enroll now there's an enrollment form that tells you when all the group discussions are and what are you charging uh it is 697 697 yeah, unless you're a, a Substack subscriber of mine in oh. which case there's a discount oh. but if just like pro tip if you subscribe to Substack for five dollars you get fifty dollars off the course <laughs> that's so. the best five dollars you've <laughs> yeah. ever invested ten, wait um, what would that be like 10 times your money yeah. immediately but i offer i'm like extremely flexible about payment plans and like literally everyone that's reached out to me with like a financial barrier to entry have come up with a solution for so i'm not very uh, so people can pay you in chickens and eggs yeah there's so many ways that we can make it work I, I feel like there's so many obnoxious like people who teach courses online which i feel like disgustingly associated with but who are like this is my course and this is what it's worth and i don't make any exceptions and don't give refunds and um that's just not really me i'm i'm more inclined to have as many people who want to take it be able to take it so Right. If there's a an issue or if you need a, an extended payment plan more than I have listed, you can just let me know. Anya Kotz at gmail.com. So. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Is there anything we haven't covered that you wanted to hit here? I don't think so. Thanks think for chatting with me. We've been talking for well over an hour. Probably. I don't know when we started. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening. I, I'm sort of... You introduced it. I'm closing Wrapping it. it up. That works. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. It's always an honor to have your attention in this world that is increasingly demanding attention. Yeah. I'm. This probably isn't the time to announce it, but I'm. I'm about to make some major changes in my yeah. participation in the attention economy. <laughs> Yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm reading a book right now. I don't think I told you I downloaded mm-hmm. this book to my Kindle called um, 10 Arguments oh, for right. Deleting Your Social Media Accounts or something like yeah. that by this guy who was one of the founders of the Internet. He's like one of the great geniuses at the heart of the whole Internet. And he's like, this has gone the wrong way. I'm feeling it. I feel pretty pretty fed up. I mean, I feel like I really mostly just use Instagram to post pictures as I used it when it came out 11 years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, it's in increasingly infuriating for sure. Yeah. And it's weird. I mean, that's one of the points that he makes is the whole thing is designed to bring out the worst in people. Yeah. Uh, in addition to just wasting our lives, you know, yeah. just sitting there looking, scrolling through angry tweets or whatever and like 700 ads and it was cool when you just got to see what people posted that you followed who were your friends in chronological order and you saw everything and now it's like you see it's like one percent of what people actually post and it's inundated by things they want you to look at and yeah it's a waste of time and it's not even i I don't understand i I mean 
it's it's weird reading this book because he's talking about you know all these engineers and these finely tweaked algorithms that yeah. they know how long you look at something before you look away and you know if you are more likely to click like after you just saw an ad for you know kittens yeah. or something like it does all this research but it's still so bad. Like I, I'm on YouTube and it keeps showing me the same things. Like I've already watched that fucking video. Why are you putting that up again? Yeah. You know, yeah. or like it just, it it's like really blunt in some ways and really poorly functioning. So I don't understand on one side. It's like very intricate. I mean, it's yeah. kind of like what's happening in Ukraine, right? Like Russia has this incredibly sophisticated air force and nuclear missiles and all this, but they can't, keep their tanks rolling you know it's just like eh, it's a weird yeah and i think they're gonna ultimately both russia hopefully but also social media like lose like i think we're going to be turning away from that and moving into something that's more long form and less affected by ads and algorithms well that's what substack's doing right right? i mean their whole thing is you pay the creator right and we take a small cut and we just make a place where you can do this but there are no ads there's no control it's like super yeah i mean i just obviously just did this i deleted my patreon in exchange for substack because i didn't want to put my community behind a paywall anymore so if you pay if you donate money or you don't you still get access to the same things and you can subscribe for free where patreon didn't allow you to do that and it's like i don't want to charge everyone who can't afford it to get access to this um so yeah, I think I think that's the way of the future. I think we're definitely going to like return to blogging, which I'm into, and mm. sort of like multimedia approach to something. Right. Like writing and photographs and podcasting and videos and you follow the people you want to follow uh individually maybe and right. you don't have to be inundated by a bunch of crap you don't want to spend And your you own your own content. I mean that's the yeah. other thing uh-huh. about this yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. Like I post a photo and now Instagram owns that right. photo. Fuck you I know, Instagram. It's wild. Yeah. God damn it. Anyway, all right. So it's just a teaser <laughs> yeah. for the, the big change in, in at least yeah. my participation in this thing. Stay tuned. All right. Thank you, everybody. Hope you're having a great time out there. Uh, much love from Kosh. It's like so disingenuous to say. Like, hope hope, hope you're well. Like, is anybody well? How are we even saying yeah, that? people are well. well. I mean, people are, you know. As well as they can be. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, the world's the world's falling apart, but we're keeping our shit together, right? That should be the name of your podcast. How to keep your shit together in a world that's falling apart. <laughs> that is basically what my podcast is. <laughs> right. That's, that's the true. tagline. That's true. <laughs> All right, everybody. All right. Bye. All right. So I hope you're keeping your shit together as the world falls apart. Maybe it's not really falling apart. Maybe it's falling together. Who knows? It's hard to tell in real time. In any case, I hope you enjoyed that conversation and uh, just want to remind you to check out omgs.com forward slash Chris Ryan for 10% off. This is probably the last you'll hear me talking about that. So if you space this one out, God knows you'll miss it. You'll miss the whole party and you'll never get access to this incredible scientifically research devised information about women sexual pleasure and uh yeah it's great get a map right it's great to have a map to these territories these terrains of pleasure speaking of unrestricted female sexual pleasure 
Say hello to Carsey Blanton singing Smoke Alarm, a song by and about the embodiment of that very principle. Yeah. All right, I'll catch you again soon. Thanks for listening. Ciao. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. to the ground.